What has happened to African-American voting rights after the Supreme Court's 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder? Can the Voting Rights Act still protect minority voting rights in states such as Alabama and Texas? What are the prospects that a new Congress will help step in to protect everyone's right to vote? On episode 10 of the ELB podcast, we talk to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund's Janae Nelson. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Janae Nelson, who is the Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. She's also a former director of LDF's Political Participation Group and a former NAACP LDF Freed Frank Fellow. Before joining the LDF staff, she was the Associate Dean for Faculty Scholarship and Associate Director of the Ronald H. Brown Center for Civil Rights and Economic Development at St. John's University School of Law, where she also served as a full professor of law. And uh, she uh, is the 2013 Derek A. Bell Award recipient from the American Association of Law Schools Section on Minority Groups and was recently named one of Lawyers of Color's 50 Under 50 Minority Professors making an impact in legal education. Her scholarship focuses on domestic and comparative election law, race, and democratic theory, and she's taught courses in election law, political participation, comparative election law, voting rights, professional responsibility, and constitutional law. Janae, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I thought we could start by having you spend a few minutes describing what your docket looks like right now. What kind of cases uh, are, are, is the LDF involved in specifically? What kind of cases are you involved in right now? And especially those that might have some effect on the upcoming election. Well, we're involved in a number of cases that I think are uh, directly tied to you know, many of the issues that will enable voters to participate fully in the upcoming election. Whether they will be resolved before then is a, is a whole other question. Uh, but certainly they, they, I think, resonate with the um, interest that, that so many have in our democracy and ways in which to increase participation and uh, ways in which others may feel they ought to suppress participation. So we're confronting that from um, a variety of angles. And I can talk specifically about two cases that I think are at the core and are sort of emblematic of some of the challenges and concerns that we're dealing with in a post-Shelby environment. Um, The first case is one that we filed most recently, and that is against the state of Alabama, where we're representing uh, a number of clients, including Greater Birmingham Ministries, uh, in a challenge to that state law's photo identification law. It's a very strict photo ID law, and uh, we have done uh, preliminary research that clearly shows a disparate impact on African Americans in Alabama and particularly across uh, the Black Belt. And these are issues that were teed up for us really last year. uh, We were concerned as soon as the the bill was passed, but certainly last year when we saw in addition to the photo identification laws uh, going into effect or being readied for implementation, that there were increasingly fewer opportunities for individuals to obtain the necessary photo identification. Uh, This started with the closure 
of Department of Motor Vehicle locations in the Black Belt, something that we contested and, and protested and wrote to the election authorities in Alabama about. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that we were successful in uh, having them reverse their decision on some of the closures. But the law itself that still has such a significant disparate impact is still in effect. And that's what we continue to challenge in court now. I don't know, given the timetable, that it will be resolved in advance of the upcoming November election. Uh, but certainly we are we are uh, moving as, as quickly as we can to try to impress upon the court the need for immediate relief. Um, there are so many issues with that particular photo identification law, uh, including the fact that you can use your identification as an employee of the state. Uh, so for example, if you work in public housing as a state employee, you can use that identification to vote. But if you're a resident of a public facility of public housing in Alabama, uh, you cannot use that identification in order to vote. So there's a, a real disparate harm considering the, the racial makeup of those who reside in public housing in Alabama who are largely African-American. Um, and it just really reveals the inconsistency in how, um, and how these laws uh, uh, are aimed to either thwart participation in certain communities uh, or encourage it in others. And, and that is something that we see not just in Alabama, but uh, across the country. And another example of that is another case that we're actively involved in with a coalition of partners, and that's uh, VC uh, versus Perry, which is a case out of Texas that challenges what we deem to be the most stringent photo identification law in the country. Uh, SB 14, which was passed right on the heels of the Shelby County decision in 2013, it went into effect. It had previously uh, been denied pre-clearance. And the moment that the Shelby County decision uh, came down and enabled states to enact and implement laws without federal government approval, the state of Texas put this into effect. Um, and uh, Texas Secretary of State John Steen immediately announced that that this would be the new law of the land in Texas. That photo identification law has the potential to disenfranchise over one million Texans uh, of all races, of, of all political stripes. Uh, there are almost one million people, or, or actually a little over one million people, uh, who may be disenfranchised by this law. And of that number, 600,000 are uh, African-American or Latino. Uh, so we are deeply concerned about the fact that this law remains in effect, even though every federal court to have reviewed it has determined that it is discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act and possibly even under the Constitution as an intentional act of discrimination. Uh, we are actively fighting uh, to get some relief in that case before the November election. Uh, we just passed Super Tuesday where that law was in effect and our client, uh, a young student at Prairie View A&M was unable to vote again in another election. Uh, and, and this is incredibly disheartening at a time when we feel that we should be doing everything possible to encourage robust participation in our democracy, considering uh, all the all the issues 
uh, civil rights issues, racial justice issues, social justice issues uh, that that have really uh, been teed up and come to the fore over the past 18 months to two years that have energized and excited uh, the youth in this country. And we seem to be uh, uh, imposing more and more barriers to their participation and to the participation of so many other marginalized and voiceless groups. Let me just ask you, uh, before we go on back to the, the Texas case, as I understand it, the uh, suit in, is in suspended animation as we're waiting to hear from the entire United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit as to whether or not they're going to take that case on banc. Uh, do you have any sense of the timetable? Has the court given you any indication as to when this thing might move? Rick, it's, uh, you, you are asking the pressing question of the day. We have no idea when the court will act on this. And uh, we feel that this is a really urgent issue considering that we just passed. We First, we had an election in November where this discriminatory law was implemented. We just had the Super Tuesday primaries. There will be a runoff election in May. And then, of course, the general election in November. And the court has not acted. We've had this motion pending since the fall, since uh, September of 2015. And there has been no action on the part of the Fifth Circuit uh, to deal with this pending motion for a rehearing on Bonk, which, as you said, involves a uh, a hearing by the entire Fifth Circuit. A panel, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit said that this law was in fact uh, discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act. It had a disparate impact on uh, blacks and Latinos in Texas and recommended that this case be remanded to the district court to explore further whether the uh, the lower court's finding that the law was not only violative of the Voting Rights Act, but also violative of the Constitution, because it was intentionally discriminatory. Uh, the court asked that the lower court revisit that question uh, with the standard that the appellate court uh, articulated in its opinion, just to make sure that that finding of intent, which we all know is a very serious one, just to make sure that that finding of intent was in fact sound and just. Um, and the Court of Appeals has not yet issued the mandate uh, for the remand so that the district court can actually review the case as that three-judge panel suggested. Uh, and, and then, as you note, uh, subsequently there was this uh, 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 request on the part of the state of Texas that the entire Fifth Circuit rehear the case. Um, and also, it's, you know, we, we, we are expecting that there may be some Supreme Court play um, if, if, if this continues. And frankly, we are willing to take it all the way, uh, uh, all the way there if we need to in order to protect the voting rights of, of Texans and particularly the Black and Latino Texans who have suffered uh, this discrimination and who face uh, you know, what, what many consider to be one of the most momentous general elections uh, in modern history without uh, the protection of the Voting Rights Act and without um, the, the enforcement of the orders of two federal courts. Well, so you've now talked about two states and two cases, one in Alabama and one in Texas. I want, I want to ask you to kind of take a broader view from 30,000 feet and, and uh, address the question of what does the landscape of voting rights look like for African Americans in the United States in 2016? What are the kind of things that keep you up at night? And, and what do you think has greatly improved since the, you know, over, say, the 50-year arc of the, of the, uh, since the passage of the Voting Rights Act? 
Well, I'm glad that you asked uh, that we look at this from from 10,000, 30,000, 50,000 feet um, as we just uh, passed the 51st anniversary of, of Bloody Sunday just a few days ago. Um, it, it really provides a moment to sit back and reflect on how much progress we have, in fact, made since the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, at the time that the VRA was was first passed in 1965, there were only five Black elected officials in Congress, less than 1,400 Black officials nationwide. You know, by the end of the 1970s, that number had more than doubled to nearly 5,000. By the 1990s, uh, we were looking at unparalleled Black elected uh, official success and and now we're we're upwards of more than ten thousand black elected officials. So there has indeed been an enormous amount of progress. Uh, but as I as I sit back and I and you ask what keeps me up at night, what worries me? Um, what worries me significantly are the uh, is the proliferation of barriers in this modern era to voting across the board and particularly aimed at minority voters. Uh, I feel that despite the progress that I just uh, uh, articulated, that we are now in an era of rollbacks and reversals on so many of the gains that we've made in the civil rights landscape more broadly, but but also in the area of voting rights. Um, We saw an unleash of of, uh, countless um, laws across the country following the Shelby County decision. And frankly, even before Shelby County, uh, right after Barack Obama was elected as the first African-American president, we saw a, a significant backlash in state legislatures across the country to suppress the vote. And this came on the heels of the largest and most robust turnout of African-Americans in general elections in the election of, of, of Barack Obama. That correlation uh, should not be lost on anyone, uh, that there is a direct relationship between uh, the increase in, in minority voter turnout, uh, a direct relationship between the changing demographics of this country, uh, which dictate that, you know, in, 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 a, in a short period of time, in, in a decade or so, we will be a majority minority country. And this effort to restrict minority voting power and to suppress minority votes. Um, the particular tactics that I think are, are most troubling um, uh, you know, include the photo identification laws of the sort that I mentioned in, in, in Alabama, in Texas, in North Carolina, in Florida, in, in Mississippi, in Wisconsin, in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, it's not just a, a Southern issue, although, you know, it certainly predominates there, but it's across the board. Um, it involves the impact of felon disenfranchisement laws that, um, that, that, that keep so many people locked out of this democratic process uh, because of a crime that has nothing to do with the operation or integrity of elections. Uh, it's antithetical to the notion that a democracy should include all voices and that all voices, in fact, help inform the best policies and the best laws and the best direction for a country and help to solve some of the issues that um, some of the most marginalized people in society may be facing. Um, and, and, and that is uh, that those, that's a set of laws 
um, that that continues to to worry and frustrate me, and I think undermine the true ideals of, of our democracy. I also think the fact that we have not yet gotten to a, a place where uh, automatic voter registration is a foregone conclusion in a democracy such as ours, in a society that is advanced as ours, um, that has the technological capacity that we do, that we are not looking at broad measures to enable everyone to vote more easily uh, and to uh, ensure that registration is is foolproof, uh, to encourage all citizens to get out to vote. The fact that we are doing things um, on a variety of levels to make it more difficult um, uh, is, is, is incredibly uh, stressful to me. Um, and just, I would add, the final thing that is incredibly discouraging is uh, what I think is uh, 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 the degree of partisanship that has that has uh, overtaken our democratic principles. And, um, and it can happen from any party. Uh, we have litigated against uh, Democrats and Republicans who have sought to manipulate the minority vote to their own partisan advantage. And that is something that um, I, I see, if not worsening, at least persistent in a way that is incredibly disappointing 51 years after the passage of the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. Now, one of the things that you've uh, brought up a few times in our discussion is how the Supreme Court's 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which essentially gutted the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, has, has allowed a lot of these changes to take place. The, the, the Alabama um, voter ID law could well have been put on hold. We know the Texas law was put on hold and there was litigation and uh, uh, the, the three-judge court continued to keep it on hold. So, so Shelby, the, the loss of Shelby County has certainly made a, made a big difference. And I'm wondering um, what you think the prospects are of political change in Congress after the next election to try to restore or somehow uh, deal with the loss of the preclearance provisions of Section 5. Well, I think this uh, upcoming Senate election is uh, it, it's 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 incredibly important to the future of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we see so much obstinance and and recalcitrance in Congress and in in uh, the Senate uh, in moving forward on various and sundry uh, in, important issues to the function of our democracy and to our legitimacy, you know, nationwide and, and, and in the world. Um, obviously, the, the most uh, pressing and, and prominent issue right now is whether the Senate Judiciary Committee would be willing to hold a hearing for the open seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, but similarly, prior to to uh, Justice Scalia's passing, uh, teeing up this issue, uh, there was also the same concern around the Voting Rights Advancement Act uh, that many civil rights groups like the Legal Defense Fund have supported uh, and think is a an excellent uh, fix to the Voting Rights Act that addresses all of the concerns raised in the Shelby County decision uh, and includes additional provisions to strengthen our democracy, to make it more equitable and fair. Um, that is a bill that deserves a hearing. Um, unfortunately, we've seen uh, many senators 
uh, those who came out on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act to Selma uh, to to pay homage to what that movement, what the, the, the blood and sweat and tears on that bridge and in that broader movement brought to our democracy, they, they came out to do that, uh, but have not since moved forward with getting a hearing on an act that can help rehabilitate the Voting Rights Act to make it um, in line with the, uh, you know, the constitutional concerns raised in the Shelby County decision. And that is, uh, again, another example of how it seems that partisanship has taken over our democratic principles and ideals in a way that has uh, really left our, our democracy, uh, I, I think, you know, bereft of, of the integrity that, that we have worked so hard to try to establish, uh, both nationally and internationally. Uh, but particularly, it has left minority voters in the lurch and without any real protection as they face an onslaught of continued restrictions on the right to vote. Now, one of the things that, that um, the LDF and others have done with the demise of Section 5 is shifted to trying to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, as a means of going after uh, these voting changes. And I, I want to just delve in the weeds a bit on this question of the application of Section 2 in what uh, has come to be called the vote denial cases, so not cases involving redistricting, where we have a pretty familiar kind of standard for judging when a redistricting plan violates the Voting Rights Act, but uh, changes that make it harder to uh, register or to vote. And so one of the things I hear a lot from Republicans when they see uh, attacks on, say, cutbacks in early voting in North Carolina or Ohio is, why aren't uh, voting rights groups attacking places like New York or Pennsylvania where there's no early voting at all? And and is this really a kind of one-way ratchet where we're seeing Democratic uh, legislatures expand voting opportunities, but when Republicans try to contract them, they face a lawsuit under Section 2? So it's an interesting question, um, and, it's, and it's one that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm deeply connected to. I, I wrote an article uh, a few years ago, The Causal Context of Disparate Vote Denial, that dealt precisely with the issue of how Section 2 applies in a vote denial context. And, and just for those who may be less familiar with the standard, uh, Section 2, um, unlike Section 5, requires an affirmative lawsuit to address a, a, a law that has a disparate impact on minority voters. Um, Section 5, as we all know, prevents the law from going, to, going into effect in the first instance in certain jurisdictions that were covered uh, by that provision. So Section 2 is, is not um, uh, as, as, as easy a tool to use as Section 5 because it requires uh, a great amount of resources and a great amount of time, frankly, which is why we're facing these elections coming up in November without any resolution in Texas and Alabama and, and in other parts of the country, because Section 2 litigation uh, takes a great deal of time, a great deal of resources, um, a different degree of, of proof and and usually you know many experts and, and so forth uh, that make it a much more protracted um, a protracted method of, of seeking a remedy. Um, I, I think that Section 5, I mean, six, sorry, Section 2 um, has not been able to fill the breach that, uh, uh, and, and the void that was created 
by Shelby County, uh, but we are beginning to use it more. And we always have. Section 2 has always been a, a mainstay, certainly in the Legal Defense Fund's enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but we are starting to see it being used in more creative ways uh, to stave off some of the uh, restrictions or, or lack of uh, expansion of voting opportunity, as you suggest, in a variety of jurisdictions. Uh, Pennsylvania was challenged. I mean, there was a, 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 a the Applewheat case um, uh, was a, a perfect example of a, a Northeast state uh, implementing a voting rights law, a photo ID law uh, that had a disparate impact on minority voters. Um, and, uh, and, and there was success there in putting pressure on uh, the state to, to walk back from the implementation of that strict law. Um, New York City, many people don't realize that New York City was in fact covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And certainly during my time litigating um, as a junior lawyer at LDF uh, years ago, uh, we used Section 2 uh, in many instances to uh, achieve equitable redistricting plans uh, and to uh, push back on uh, poll polling site uh, relocations that we thought would have a discriminatory impact and, and importantly as well to deal with language assistance uh, in, a, in one of the most diverse cities uh, of the country. So we, we continue to try to find a way to uh, maintain that degree of presence and uh, that degree of enforcement now through Section 2. Uh, but as I said, for all, for all the reasons I've identified, um, it certainly isn't as quick. It certainly isn't, uh, it, it's not as prophylactic as Section 5. And so we're not able to cover the same landscape in the same degree that we were with Section 5 as, as, we, as we're trying to do with Section 2. Uh, I should also note that, that many have tried to invoke some preclearance um, through the use of Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act, which allows certain jurisdictions to be covered uh, by a preclearance provision under, under Section 3 uh, if you can prove uh, you know, a certain uh, discriminatory violation and you get a finding by the court and, and you meet certain other uh, standards. Again, those are uh, much more uh, 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 difficult hurdles to clear than going to the federal government that make, that can make an affirmative and uh, uh, an, an advanced determination of the impact of, of any proposed law on the minority electorate. So I just want to uh, just hone in on this early voting point. Uh, do you think it's possible that it could be a violation of Section 2 for, say, a state like North Carolina or Ohio to cut back on its early voting, but it, it would not be a Section 2 violation for a state that never offered early voting to continue to not offer early voting? How does the vote denial uh, test work in that particular kind of context? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because there are so many uh, possible uh, uh, democracy expanding efforts that a state can take, like offering early voting, like offering uh, uh, automatic registration, like offering uh, provisional ballots. Uh, there, there are so many uh, measures that states can take that would expand participation. Um, and whether the failure to do so is a Section 2 violation, I think is territory that we need to um, continue to try to, to plow and, and expand the uh, application of Section 2 uh, to be more affirmative in requiring states 
to do more. Uh, that certainly isn't where the jurisprudence has been. Uh, most of it has been in preventing uh, the the uh, taking away of democracy expanding efforts uh, that have benefited minority communities or or preventing further restriction of the minority vote. But the use of Section 2 to require um, democracy expanding measures in, in various jurisdictions is something that I think the absence of Section 5 is going to push many more litigators toward. And let me finally ask you uh, on, a, on a personal level about the difference between working in the election law field as an academic versus working <laughs> primarily at, a, at an impact litigation public interest firm. Uh, how are they different? What, what aspects do you like? Uh, what, what do you miss uh, about academia now? <laughs> I love this question. Um, you know, I, I think I have the best of both worlds here. Uh, when I was back at the Legal Defense Fund in 2000 and 2005 and in the trenches, I started off litigating um, uh, a case uh, Harris out of NAACP versus Harris out of Florida following the 2000 election debacle. Um, you're in the trenches. You're 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 so close to the issues um, and and the 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 furious pace of litigation doesn't allow you to step back and think about, you know, some of the questions like the one you just asked about how we might apply Section 2 more expansively. I was able to do that in academia. And now in this position at the helm of the Legal Defense Fund in partnership with our president and director counsel, who is also a, a voting rights scholar, uh, we're able to, to do both, to look at our litigation and also think about the strategic trajectory of it, uh, to, to think about how we deal with uh, setbacks like Shelby County and opportunities like uh, a potential shift on the court and what that means for our voting rights docket and what it means for um, you know expanding democratic opportunities for uh, African-Americans more broadly. So I'm, I'm able to take the time to do that to some extent and as part of our strategic vision, really think about some of these lofty questions and what the, the five-year uh, uh, plan is, what the what we ultimately hope to see in the next round of redistricting, what the shifting demographics of this country uh, mean for uh, African-American uh, voting opportunity and, 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 and governance. Um, I'm, I'm forced to do that uh, as, as part of a legacy institution, civil rights institution, and think about these bigger and broader questions. And I think that my grounding in academia has enabled me to do that um, and, and also work with the lawyers here, the very uh, incredible and able lawyers who are on the ground and, and keep feeding us stories uh, from the field uh, about the issues that our clients are facing on a daily basis. Well, Jane Nelson, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about these issues and uh, wish you luck as we enter the upcoming election season. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz, by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye.